There are those who say the Bible and its teachings represent the one true reflection of God, God's word, and that Christianity is the one true and holy religion. But particularly since the experience of 9-11, there are also those who would say that the teachings of the Quran are as far apart from the purpose and the teachings of the Bible as one can get. Indeed, many say that the only thing the Quran and the Bible have in common is absolutely nothing. But today's guest offers compelling insight into a very different view. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I'm very pleased to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Gabriel Saeed Reynolds. He is considered one of the world's leading Quranic scholars. He is a professor of Islamic studies and theology at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of too many books and articles to cite here, but today we will be discussing his more recent publication, The Quran and the Bible, Text and Commentary. Dr. Reynolds, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you, Dr. Brewer. I'm delighted to be with you. Dr. Reynolds, what goal did you have in mind as you approached the creation of this text and commentary, which is quite thorough? Well, my principal goal was to help a broad readership approach the Quran and understand the Quran. You know, for, for many people in the West, the Quran is seen as a text maybe with few connections with maybe Western literature generally or with the biblical tradition in particular. But in fact, the Quran is a book that engages and tells stories of many of the biblical stars, the protagonists of the biblical story, including Adam. You know, if you start from the beginning, Adam and Noah and Abraham, even Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Quran is interested and engaged with all of these characters. So there are sort of bridges or points of connection that can be made easily. But the other challenge is that if you open the Quran, if you go and buy any sort of translation of the Quran, of which there are dozens, it's a challenging book to read. It doesn't proceed in a chronological order. It doesn't start with creation and end with the apocalypse, as does the Bible. And it doesn't follow the preaching of Muhammad in a chronological order either. And so um, it can be difficult to piece together. So the goal of this book is to help readers First of all, find connections between the Quran and the Bible, but second of all, to understand the Quran and the logic of the Quran more clearly. You heard me say um, just before I introduced you that, at least in my view, post 9-11, whatever people thought or understood about the Quran really exploded in many areas uh, of the country into very negative perceptions. And one of the reasons I was so interested in having you on as a guest on Mind Talk is that, at least from my perspective, religion is much too often used as a way to separate us, which, again, from my view, is quite unhealthy for our emotional and social well-being. What's your thought about that perspective? Right. There's no question that people have, um, in in many cases, looked to Islam as a threat um, and seen seen the Quran as a constitution or a... um, a call to to violence and aggression against against non-Muslims and maybe against the West and, and America, in particular. 
And I think it's helpful just to sort of step back and take a broader perspective. Let's remember that um, Islam is the second biggest religion in the world. It's also a fastly growing religion. Um, there are almost 2 billion Muslims in the world today. And um, it only takes a small handful or a sm small minute currents within that larger sea of Muslim believers to um, organize themselves in a violent way and therefore tarnish or corrupt the name of Muslims generally. And that's, that's exactly what's happened. You know, I brought my class here in South Bend, Indiana last week to our local mosque so we could observe Friday prayers. And, you know, the sight of Muslims in worship um, praying to God, invoking the names of the prophets, many of whom we know, um, Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad. Um, it, this site is a more faithful representation of what Islam is all about. It's principally a spirituality, principally a connection between humans and their creator and God. And um, it's, been, it's been corrupted then by this very small movement um, which, of course, has done terrible things. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't minimize this. Um, there, is, there are movements which are, which are a threat, but they don't represent Islam. What was the initial reaction uh, to the, the creation of, of your book? Did you have positive feedback, negative feedback? Yes, to both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, I mean... The book has a, has a challenge to make, really, both both to a Muslim readership and to a non-Muslim readership. So to Muslims, you know, the traditional doctrine of Islam is that the Quran is not simply a book of inspiration, but is a revealed book, or even more visually, a book that was brought down from heaven to earth by the angel Gabriel. And, and the angel simply communicated the contents of this book to the Prophet Muhammad, who did nothing but memorize what the angel said, and repeat those words. So this is the, the traditional Islamic doctrine, which means there can be no influences, there can be no subtext, there can be no real historical context for the Quranic preaching, because it simply came from heaven. And this book does challenge that view. It says, no, the Quran is a text which emerges in its place and time, can be better understood when we appreciate that place and that time. It has all of these connections between the biblical tradition in particular, doesn't mean it agrees with everything in the Bible. So that's whole one set of challenges. And, you know, um, many Muslims are, are fascinated to find these connections. Some want to defend a more conservative theological perspective, so they may not agree with everything in the book. On the other side as well, there's a challenge that's being made to a non-Muslim readership to say, listen, the Quran is part of the greater story of biblical history. The Quran continues some of the, the debates and discussions around biblical figures and it should be read by Jews and Christians and also by non-religious people who are interested in this religious heritage. And so, you know, um, the Quran should find a place on bookshelves next to the Bible and not be kept apart from it. You say that, um, and, and certainly true, um, that, that Christians today, people who define themselves as Christian, know the Bible as being in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is that the same as the Quran? Right. Well, the, the way that we visualize the relationship between these three books is sort of the heart of the matter when it comes to interreligious dialogue. So, you know, we forget sometimes that um, in Christian tradition, 
um, there, there was a debate around the status of the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians now know as the Old Testament. In the early church, there were some scholars who argued that um, the God who, um, who sent Jesus Christ is a fundamentally different God than the God we meet in the Old Testament. By the way, there are some Christians who have this attitude still today. They'll say, like, well, I prefer the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. And I, I encounter this with my students sometimes here at Notre Dame. I say, wait, isn't there just one God after all? Um, so, But the early Christian community made that choice principally because the gospel authors invoke elements of the Hebrew Bible to advance their case about Jesus. So the church decided, no, the Hebrew Scripture is also revealed, also inspired, so we have a Bible in two parts. I see. Now, when Islam appears in the 7th century, there was a similar decision. Um, Muslims um, uh, knew that there was a connection with biblical characters, but they had a decision to make about the Bible itself. Islam ultimately decided that the Bible cannot be considered authentic scripture or revelation. It was not included in the so-called canon of Islamic scripture. It's not, for example, put in one book, bound in one book, together with the Old and New Testaments, or the Quran is not. And so um, Muslims decided that it should be kept separate. And what I really argue for in this book is that these these two books, the Quran, these two scriptures, and the Bible should be brought together again. Dr. Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, author of the Quran and the Bible, text and commentary. We are going to take a break, folks, but we will be back in just a moment to continue our conversation. Dr. Reynolds, you make the point uh, early on in uh, your study that uh, Muslims, you say, and I'm quoting, Muslims in theory could have considered the Bible as an authoritative scripture. And there are some signs that the author of the Quran attributed such authority to the Bible. Can you say more about that? That, right, that is an, an interesting debate that scholars um, uh, really disagree about. You know, what, what, was, um, what is the Quran's disposition as concerns the Bible? Because you have certain passages in the Quran where there's um, polemic against the Jews and the Christians for their treatment or accusations against the Jews and Christians for not having preserved properly the, the divine revelation given to the prophets. So we have passages like Quran chapter 2. The Quran is a book in 114 chapters. There's um, verse 79 in chapter 2 says, you know, the Israelites or the Jews, they write things with their hand, and then they say, this comes from God. And so we have passages like this, which seem to suggest the Jews and the Christians were not good stewards of divine revelation. But then you have other passages where the author of the Quran, which of course for Muslims is simply God, seems to be directing the prophet to ask the Jews and the Christians whenever he's uncertain. If a passage like that in chapter 10 of the Quran, it says, if ever you're in doubt, O Muhammad, of the things we've revealed to you, then go ask those who are reading the book before you. 
There's even a passage in chapter 5 of the Quran which seems to command the so-called people of the gospel to rule according to the things that God has revealed in the gospel. So we seem to have these two messages. You know, One message is Jews and the Christians, they can't really be trusted for their way that they've preserved the divine word. But the other message is um, actually you can consult with them if you're, not, if you're not certain about what we're revealing to you because we're not revealing something new but something old, the same message given to earlier prophets. So there's this debate based on what's in the Quran itself. What's not in the Quran, however, is a simple declaration that the Bible is inauthentic or corrupt or falsified. And so that's part of the argument for this book, you know, the Quran and the Bible, is that um, even the Quran itself, it seems to count on the biblical knowledge of its audience. And so if you want to understand the Quran, you should understand the Bible as well. And this, this book provides those biblical quotations that hope, help enlighten Quranic passages. Well, I, I hear you, but, but I also have to now quote you again and ask you to, to tell me a little bit more, because you do say that in older passages, the Quran suggests that the Jews and the, and the Christians misread the scripture. There are all kinds of hidden things in it, and that, in fact, that they essentially made up stuff, wrote it down, and then said, yes, this is the, the true uh, this this is the true word, and I, and, and I know you just talked about that a little bit, but it seems like such a huge departure from if you are in doubt, go to these people who have known before you. How do you how do the two connect, or do they connect at all? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to to articulate precisely how they connect. And you know, when we when we actually read the Quran, we do find that you know many elements are in common. So, for example, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, is found in the Qur'an. Eve is not given a name. She's simply Adam's wife. The only woman who's given a name in the Qur'an is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But anyway, that, that story is there of Adam and Eve. The story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son is there. The story of Moses in the Exodus out of Egypt is there. So there are many common stories which suggest that the Qur'an sees itself as emerging from the same biblical tradition. But then you have differences. You have places where the stories depart. For example, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of a son, which you know your listeners may know from Genesis. In Genesis, it's Isaac who he sacrifices. In the Quran, it's not clear who he sacrifices. The son is never named, but there's some reason to think that the Quran imagines it to be Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar, not Isaac, the son of Abraham through Sarah. So the, the nature of the stories that the Quran tells you know, especially when it comes to Jesus, which we could mention as well or speak about more, especially when it comes to Jesus, there, there are departures. And so one imagines that the Quran's author was realizing that um, he had different perspectives on some of these biblical stories, but still wanted to connect his message with the Bible and probably um, convince his audience that this is an authentic continuation of biblical tradition. You say, in fact, that you believe that the Quran is original work in both literary and religious terms. Right, ab absolutely. So um, the Quran, first of all, the literary element, the Quran is a fascinating book. You know, many people don't know this, but the Quran is our first book in the Arabic language. So we, we have earlier um, rock inscriptions and um, uh, writings that were you know, etched in stone in Arabia, but in terms of a, of a book, it, the story of Arabic literature begins with the Qur'an. 
It's also very distinctive. When you hear the Quran in Arabic, it's a book which rhymes. About 85% of the Quran is rhyming. And so it has this sort of poetic element to it, although Muslims wouldn't say it's poetry. They would say it's something more than poetry. So that's certainly the case. And in terms of theology, you know, the Quran is entering into a time and place in the 7th century where there were intense theological debates, first of all between Jews and Christians, Christians insisting that Jesus is the Christ who was predicted in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, but then also among Christians. Christians were fighting over exactly how to understand Christ, the relationship between the divine nature and the human nature. And then we have this other element which seems to be a sort of paganism that still existed in Arabia. So the Quran emerges into this context where there's intense theological and religious debates, and it advances its own particular theology, which is that God or Allah, is the only thing that can be worshipped, and the greatest sin is to worship something else or associate something else with them. There's a passage in the Quran which says, God can forgive anything he wills except the association of something that is not God with God. The You, you mentioned the word paganism, and of course that's, there are those who see that as a, a religious pursuit and celebrate. And, of course, there are those who are horrified even with the word. So when you're talking about the Quran and the Bible and paganism, I, I know that brings up all kinds of stuff for all kinds of folks. H- how do you respond to your uh, inclusion of the concept of paganism as you're discussing and exploring the Quran and the Bible? Right. Great, great question. And of course, you know, in the 21st century Western context, we have a sort of general conviction that, um, or many people have a general conviction that that all religions are to be respected, may be treated equally. Um, From the Quran's perspective, that's not the case. All religions are not equal. You know, the Quran's perspective is a theological one, which means um, it advances the belief that there's one God and that the Quran is his revelation. And, um, and that um, th- there are things which God likes and things he doesn't like. Um, he likes piety, also good works, righteousness, but he dislikes impiety. And impiety is described as being a bad monotheist or being a polytheist. So polytheism is a sin, according to the Quran. You know, I was once at a, a meeting in New York City with a bunch of religious leaders, and there was a debate just, just about that. The, the, one of the Muslim religious leaders said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you believe in one God, you don't have to be a Muslim, you're okay with me. And another woman spoke up and she said, well, what about people who believe in more than one God? Aren't they okay too? And there was silence from the Muslim leader. So, I mean, that's just a very important theological principle that according to the Quran, um, there's only one God and he cannot be disrespected by a doctrine such as such as paganism. Now, one other element to bring up just very briefly is there are debates over whether, in fact, there was an important presence of pagans or how important the presence of paganism or polytheism was in Islam's origin. And and I sort of make the argument in this book that um, Judaism and Christianity were actually more important than paganism at the time that the Quran was being preached. When you say they were more important than paganism, what would you say were some of the primary differences between paganism and and the other uh, religions that were being practiced at the time? Right. What 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 confuses us is that um, looking at 
the Quran, we can divide it into two periods. The period when Muhammad was preaching in the city of Mecca, that's between 610 and 622 AD. In the time when he was preaching in Medina, which is another city to the north, between 622 and 632. Mecca is supposed to be the pagan city. But when we look at those passages, which according to Islamic tradition, were revealed in Mecca, we find that some of them seem to deal with pagans. There are, mes- there are messages the Quran advances to the effect of, you know, why do you associate other things with God? Um, why do you consider the da- God to have daughters? Um, so there's some rhetoric there. Why do you deny the resurrection of the body of the dead? But then you have other passages from the Meccan period of the Quran, which deal with Jesus or deal with Moses. You know, the, the most extensive period, um, uh, passage on the birth of Jesus in the Quran is found in chapter 19, which is considered to be a Meccan passage, so should have been revealed in this pagan city. But it's this long engagement and retelling of the, the nativity or the birth of Jesus story. So the, it's, it seems like the more you delve into the history, perhaps the more questions you have, uh, but also the more you can see the way in which the belief systems are intertwined. I think so. I would agree with that. And indeed, I mean, um, when we look at the way that Muslim piety develops, it, it, in the course of history, it's separated from the way um, that Jews and Christians developed their piety. But that's only because the doctrine is developed in early Islam that the Bible is unreliable and inauthentic. But, but the Quran itself is intertwined exactly with biblical traditions, you know, the Quran, for example, tells the story of Jonah. You know, your listeners may know the story of Jonah and the great fish or the whale. And for the Quran, it's a very important story about a people who repent. You know, the way that the, the story of Jonah goes in the Old Testament is Jonah goes off to the city of Nineveh and he gets angry because the people repent and God forgives them. That same dynamic is there in the Quranic passages on Jonah. You know, the people to whom he sent are the one people who listen to the message of a prophet and they're saved by God. So many of these stories are are the basis for common ground for Muslims, Christians, and Jews um, to be able to have a dialogue that would show how much um, how much they share in the religious traditions. Unfortunately, through the course of history, because of tensions between the different religious traditions, Muslims sort of added a layer of tradition on the Quran and um, developed um, within those traditions a whole teaching about the Bible as unreliable and inauthentic. And the book I've written makes the case that actually the Quran and the Bible can be effectively read together. Which, again, from from my perspective, would do a lot of very positive, very powerful uh, things for our country, uh, indeed for the world as a whole, and perhaps reduce some of the rush to divide um, that we often see in the world today. Uh, Professor Reynolds, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue with the Quran and the Bible text and commentary. Don't go away, folks. This is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. Professor Reynolds, I have to ask you a question about women. 
Um, (laughs) And we don't have that much time left. Maybe that's why I'm sneaking it in at the end. There is, I mean, there are, throughout whatever religious uh, perspective you you embrace, there are certainly passages about women uh, in all kinds of ways. Multiple wives, one wife, women being less than, women being, I, I mean, there's just so much. Would you say that the religious perspectives today take into account a perhaps more current view of the role of women in society or no? There's a great division over this question. You know, the the heart of the issue is that for many pious Muslims, our relationship with our religious texts, with our scriptures, is not... um, uh, is is not um, a dynamic in which we can creatively interpret and reinterpret the teachings of those scriptures. So many, many pious Muslims, men and women, look at some of the traditional scriptures and they say, listen, um, polygamy, for example, it's it's there in the Quran in chapter 4, um, that a woman should be veiled, for example. It's there not in the Quran, but in the second body of scripture in Islam, known as the Hadith. Um, that a, that a woman should inherit half as much as a man. It's there in the Quran. So you you have these these teachings which which are in the scriptures, and then the real challenge is interpretation. You know, so um, many pious conservative Muslims would say um, we can't reinterpret uh, these things. They're clear. They're in the scripture. We have to follow them. And if we deviate from them, we're deviating from the truth that God has revealed to us. And then there are other other Muslims, particularly Muslims in the West, both men and women, who would look at these passages that have to do with women, and they would say, well, actually, those are things which have um, a substance and then this um, um, this incidental contextual layer. You know, it's being revealed in the 7th century Arabia, and parts of this were meant only for that time and place, not for the 21st century in the West. We have to recontextualize these things and interpret them in a way appropriate for our own culture today. And so the the challenge and the struggle continues. Indeed. You know, if you travel to a place like, like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, you're going to see very conservative attitudes towards women. It was only recently that we're, women were given the right to drive in Saudi Arabia, as you might know. Yes. Um, but in other contexts, particularly um, in the West, um, also in some places in the Islamic world, um, you know, um, women will be fully encouraged to be, to to pursue careers and um, to be active members in, in the workforce, no less than men. Again, we have much to continue to consider. You have certainly in the creation, uh, quite frankly, of all the work that you have done, but certainly in the Quran and the Bible, I think that you have brought together so much important history uh, that hopefully will open the perspectives of many people. Professor Reynolds, where can one go to find out more about the work that you do, the other things that you have published, and indeed this book that we're discussing today? Right. So for more information on the book, I'd encourage your listeners to um, simply um, look it up, the Quran and the Bible at Yale University Press. So they could just Google Quran, Bible, Reynolds, maybe Yale University Press. Okay. And they'll find more information on the book. And more information on me, you can simply Google my name, Gabriel Said. That's spelled like said, S-A-I-D, Reynolds. And if they really want to stay uh, up to date and learn more about the things I do day to day, they could follow me 
also on Twitter, probably my Twitter feed there. It's at Gabriel Said R will we'll come up as well. Terrific. Thank you again so much for the work that you have done and for the, the patience with which you have answered my questions today. It's been a real pleasure, Dr. Burra. Thank you. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work you may choose to do with a professional of your choice. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so do email me at Pamela at mindtalk.org. That's P-A-M-E-L-A at MindTalk. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Be sure to go to the MindTalk homepage to sign up for our weekly free giveaway. If you go right away to sign up, you actually may be able to receive a copy of Dr. Gabriel Saeed Reynolds' book, The Quran and the Bible. We have one copy, so I want you to go and sign up very quickly for this week's free giveaway. And remember, folks, always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Mm-hmm.